today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, dare I say most of us, uh, most of us are familiar with the term, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. And it stands, doesn't it? It stands as a tired and true warning to kind of our, our youthful exuberance, right? Uh, uh, the excitement of our youth. It is a caution to us that the things or things that we uh, desire may ultimately end up problematic, may often end up troublesome, undesirable, and in a word, more trouble than is worth. We often see this in children. Remember when our children were small, how frequently they would ask me if they could help to wash the dishes. And then when the job became theirs, that youthful exuberance went down the drain. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. But it is not just small children to whom this caution comes and is helpful. Many things, beloved, many things. And indeed, some of the best things in life come with this caution. I remember as a young man how excited I was to finally have a car. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. But cars come with car notes, insurance payments, gas, maintenance, and traffic. And be careful what you ask for. Such are the cases oftentimes with marriage. Single people are so, so eager to be married. And marriage is a good thing. In the sight of God, in the sight of all. But be careful what you ask for. It also comes with great responsibility. And oftentimes, heartache. Such is the case with children getting home, promotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
even when it comes to the things of God, beloved. God's people have consistently needed to hear and heed this warning. In fact, when we are looking at the books and reading in Kings and in the Chronicles, what we read in these books is the rise of kings and queens. And these kings and queens rise up in the light of God saying to his people, be careful what you ask for. This may prove more troublesome than you think. Ever since God had brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he had established his rule over them as a nation. And he had given them rulers, given them leaders, Moses and Joshua and the judges and etc., to govern their day-to-day -day, uh, affairs. But God himself had established himself as the king, the governor, the ruler of his people. God ruled over his people. God guided them and protected them. God provided for them. His presence was their comfort and his promises their assurance. They had all that they could want and surely all that they needed. God was their king. And still, as we all know too well, to the sinful heart, what God provides seems not to be enough. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, for this morning we want to give a little background to Elijah and Elisha. And we'll take up Elisha properly next week. But this morning, a little background to see why there was a need for a prophet like Elisha. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see a pivotal event in the life of the nation Israel. This was to be a transitional point in the nation's existence. For it was the transition in leadership. Samuel had been judge over the nation. And now his time was coming to an end. And God had not yet a, appointed a successor to Samuel. And the leaders of Israel, the Bible says in Verse 1, the leaders of Israel, chapter 8, came to Samuel, and in coming to Samuel, they demanded that Samuel appoint for them a king, an earthly king, somebody they could visibly see ruling, reigning over them. They wanted a king. Never mind the reality and the fact that they already had one. In 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 12, the Bible makes this clear that God 
was their king. They had the eternal king. They had the almighty king. They had an ever gracious king. And yet they wanted a king after themselves. They wanted a king of their own choosing. And beloved, this becomes not only one of the most critical times in the life of the nation of Israel, but it is also one of the most telling. It is one of the most revealing. Because what the nation did in demanding a king is reveal the depth of our depravity. What they did is reveal the sinfulness of our sin, the corruptness of our nature. They showed the nature of sinfulness and how it manifests itself in rejection, replacement, and rebellion. Rejection, replacement, and rebellion. You see it in their rejection. Israel desired a king. God had been their king. He had been their provider. He had been their portion. He had been their protector. God had never failed them. They didn't need a king to lead them out of Egypt and conquer Pharaoh. God did that. They didn't need a king to lead them into Canaan and to conquer the rulers and nations in Canaan. God did that. They didn't need a king to destroy the Midianites, to overcome the Philistines. God did that. But now, all of a sudden, God's rule, God's reign is not enough. God's plan for them was no longer enough. So the Bible says in verse 4 that all the elders of Israel gathered together. And came to Samuel and Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, beloved, when Samuel heard this, the Bible tells us that he was discouraged. When he heard this, he was disheartened. When he heard this, he was dejected. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 17, Samuel called what the nation of Israel was doing an evil in the sight of the Lord. This evil thing. And why, beloved, was it so evil? It was so evil because Israel had rejected the rule of God. They had rejected the plan of God. 
They had rejected the will of God. God had a plan. God had a plan for the leadership of Israel. But they refused to wait on the Lord. To trust the Lord's timing. When Samuel heard this, he felt dejected. And notice what it says in verse 7. As Samuel expressed his frustration to the Lord, God said to Samuel, don't be dejected. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. Beloved, to reject the will of God is to reject God. To reject the word of God is to reject God. To reject the message of God is to reject God. This is what our Lord Jesus said. When he comes on the scene in Luke chapter 10 and verse 16, he tells his disciple, whoever listens to you listens to me. But who rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject me is to reject God. And this is what sin is, beloved. This is what sin is. This is the temptation of sin. What did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve to do in the garden? He tempted Adam and Eve to reject the word of God and thereby reject God himself. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. What is the temptation that the serpent offers to Eve? Hath God said? Hath God really said? Did God actually say? This is always the temptation of the enemy, that the word of God is not sufficient. That the word of God is not true. That God himself is not enough. Sin rejects God's word. And thereby sin rejects God. But as if the rejection was not bad enough, beloved. This is what makes the rejection so insidious is that rejection leads to replacement. What makes rejection so bad is that you inevitably replace it. Those who reject God then replace God. And when you reject God, you never choose better. You never choose better. It's always from the penthouse to the outhouse. Always. And this is what happens. They didn't just reject him. They wanted him replaced. Anytime you reject God, it is so that you can replace God. There's no exception to that, beloved. Absolutely no exception. 
Rejection always leads to replacement. Whenever you go to buy a car, what is the first question a car dealer asks you? Do you have a trade-in? Why? Because the assumption is you have come to replace. Because, beloved, rejection always leads to replacement. God had set Samuel as judge over the nation, just as he had done with Othniel and and Deborah and Barak and Gideon. And Samuel's time was coming to an end. And no doubt his sons were less than desirable for the leadership of Israel. And the people of Israel therefore decided that they no longer wanted a judge over them. They wanted a king. And not only did they want a king, but they decided that now was the time. They wanted to replace the will of God with the will of the people. They wanted to replace the rule of God with the rule of the people. The replacement of God's righteousness with a righteousness of their own. This is always the case. This is always the case. Perhaps you heard the term lately, bannered around on the internet and in the news media, a replacement theory. Perhaps you heard it. It's a common term that people in the know like to throw around. It's a common term that's been used in seeking to describe and understand the motivation for a young man who murdered those people in Buffalo, New York, and the racist underpinnings of his actions. It suggests that there are those who believe that the majority culture or race is somehow in danger of being replaced by a minority culture or race and thus eliminating the majority's power and influence. And because of some, some inherent danger of being replaced, someone could be motivated to engage in the evilness of murdering innocent strangers. Such things, beloved, are beyond comprehension. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this idea of replacement is not new. Since the dawn of sin, men and women have sought to replace God, his power, his influence, his rule, his presence. Because anytime you reject God, anytime we reject God, we replace God. That's what sin does. Sin always, always doesn't just want God out the way. 
sin wants to replace God with something else. And this is what Adam and Eve did. But Adam and Eve didn't just reject God. They sought to replace God with themselves. The temptation was that they would become like God. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 25 that this is the inherent wickedness and unrighteousness of the human heart. But inherent wickedness and unrighteousness of the human heart is that their human heart desires to exchange, to replace the truth of God with lies. We replace God with ourselves and thereby worship ourselves rather than God. This again is what sin is. It's replacing God. Replacing God. So I agree. I agree. Replacement is a race problem. But it is a human race problem, beloved. Our human race problem. We all do it. We're all guilty of it. We all have better ways than God has. We all have superior means than God has. We all have greater understanding than God has. No wonder the Bible says in Romans 3 and 23, we all have sin. Then some way or another, we have all tried to replace God. Reject God. And why is this? Why do we do this? Why did the nation of Israel do this? Because sin has made us rebels. And that's what rebels do. That's what rebels do. Rejection and replacement is what the nation of Israel did. Rebellion is why they did it. Because that's the root. Rebellion. Rebellion. What the nation of Israel was doing, beloved, was just all out rebellion. Rebellion against God. That's what it says in verse 5 of chapter 8, 1 Samuel. We want to be like the rest of the world, like other nations. Beloved, this was a statement of all-out rebellion. Why? Because God had called them as his people. God had called them as his elect. God had selected them as his own possession. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Why had God called them? Because the Lord loved you. Kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God called you 
God brought you out. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. God chose them. God set his love and affection upon them. God made them his prized possession. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is what made the rejection and replacement of God so, so evil, beloved. God had chosen them out of all the idolatrous nations around them to show forth his love, his goodness, his gracious rule. And in their rebellion, beloved, they would desire to go back and be just like the other nations. Back into idolatry. That's what, that's what rebellion does. Rebellion gives birth to idolatry. And thus all matter of sin. And in demanding a king, they were revealing a heart of rebellion. And the king himself would be the epitome of that rebellion. Beloved, sinful nations get the leadership that they deserve. Sinful nations get sinful leadership. This is what they ask for. This is what they're going to get. For idolatrous kings lead rebellious people into idolatry. And what, I, what idolatry does, beloved... Idolatry reveals the animosity we naturally have toward God. That's what it does. Natural born enemies of God. God says, left, we say right. God says, go, we say no. And this is what God warned them against. This is what God graciously warned them against in verse and chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, Samuel, you go to them and you tell them, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you are seeking this day. When you move away from God, it is never to a better place. It is always to a worse situation. Always, always. And their desire for a king, beloved, would be their downfall. 
this is as critical a moment in the history of the nation of Israel as there has ever been. This here, this moment, would ultimately be their downfall. And God warned them, didn't he? He warned them. He says, tell them, the king, these kings you're after, they're going to do more harm than good. They're going to lead you into bondage. They're going to lead you into war. And in the war, they're going to lead you into defeat. And in defeat, they're going to lead you into idolatry. They're going to steal what you have. They're going to take full advantage of you. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 19, beloved, there are solemn words where they refused the warning and insisted on their way. And their rebellion led to the worst of leadership. Saul, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Nadal, Ahaziah, Zimri, Amri, and of course, Ahab. 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 Whom the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30 was the most wicked of them all. And it it is during the lawless reign when Israel is at the depth of its depravity that God introduced the prophet Elijah. The wickedness of Ahab because of the rebellion of the nation brought forth the greatness of Elijah. Now, why is that? Why is that, beloved? Because here is an amazing truth. Even when God's people are faithless, he remains faithful. Even when they reject him, he doesn't reject them. God, God allowed his people to have what they wanted. And yet, in his grace and in his mercy, he provided for them what they needed. The presence of the prophets. Yes, 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 the prophets would come and they would come proclaiming the judgment of God because of the nation's idolatry. But the prophets also, beloved, and more importantly, came proclaiming the mercies of God. 
toward his people. The prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha, this is what they are. God's merciful response to the rebelliousness of his people. They are God's merciful response to his people's rebellion. What is God's response? To rejection and replacement and rebellion, what is God's response? Mercy. To the people who reject, to the people who rebel, God sent the prophets with a message of mercy. To the rebellion and rejection of God comes a word. It is a word of repentance. It is a word of reconciliation. It is a word of restoration. It is a word that says God didn't abandon his people. It's reminding them that God sent to them a word because he sent men like Samuel and he sent men like Nathan and he sent men like Gad and he sent men like Ahijah and perhaps chief of them all, he sent Elijah. He sent Elisha. Now don't miss this, beloved. By the time Elijah and Elijah come along, Israel is deep into idolatry. Their idolatry is nationwide. And chief among the idolaters was King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And into this mark of sin and rebelliousness, Elijah and Elisha come and remind God's people that he has not forgotten them. Elijah and Elisha are performers of God's miracles, yes, but also, and more importantly, they were messengers of God's mercy. And they demonstrate for us, beloved, that when God's people are at their worst, God is at his best. Because it is then that they come to know him as the God of all mercies. That he is a merciful God. That he is full and rich in mercy. What is mercy, beloved? What really is mercy? Mercy is the goodness of God in times of our misery. Mercy is the goodness of God at the time of our greatest failures. 
Mercy is the presence of God when everyone and everything else has left. Mercy is the forgiveness of God when I have done the unforgivable. Only those, beloved, who are aware of their sin, those who understand and admit to their guilt, can really and truly appreciate the richness of the mercy of God. It is in your lowest moments, beloved, that mercy is the reassurance that God hasn't abandoned you. It is in your darkest hour that mercy is the promise that God hasn't forsaken you. It is in the times of our deepest guilt that mercy is the reminder that God hasn't forgotten you. You may have turned from him, but he hasn't turned from you. This is the God we worship this morning. This is the God we sing about. This is the God we proclaim. This is still God's response to rebels. He is still merciful to rebels this morning. How does the Bible... Describe our rebellion. It says in Ephesians that we were all sinful, carnal, ignorant, by nature enemies of God, disobedient, and rebellious. And then what does it tell us is God's response? In Ephesians 2 and verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And because of his great love, he saves us by grace through faith in Christ. How does the Apostle Paul describe his own personal rebellion? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he calls himself a blasphemer, ignorant, faithless, disobedient, the worst of the worst of the worst sinners. But how does he describe God's response in chapter 1 and verse 16? But I received mercy. That's what God does. That is, has been, still is, his response to rebellious sinners. Listen, beloved, it is to a rebellious and disobedient world that God has sent Jesus with a message of judgment, yes, but more importantly, sent him performing miracles and with a message of mercy. And this is what we'll see. That's what we'll see in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. 
we'll see that the coming of Elijah and Elisha point us to the coming of Christ. We'll see that the miracles of Elijah and Elisha point us to the miracles of Christ. We'll see that the mercies shown by God through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha point us to the mercies of God found only in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Elijah and Elisha were sent to a rebellious nation. Jesus Christ has come to a rebellious world, offering mercy to rebellious sinners. Would you receive God's mercy this morning? Would you realize how in need of God's mercy we are? Every day, as rebels to his will. The song is right. I had no hope that he would own a rebel to his will. And if he had not loved me first, I would refuse him still. Hallelujah this morning. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. His mercy is my life.